Welcome to episode seven of the Filmumentaries podcast. This is Jamie Benning. I am Filmumentaries, uh, filmumentaries.com. There's also a Facebook page at Jamie SWB on Twitter. Uh, just about everything covered there. Oh no, and Instagram as well. Same, same address. Thanks for joining me again. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dan Lanigan in the last episode about his prop collection and his love for movies. This time I had the chance to speak to three gentlemen who worked together back in 1982 on Return of the Jedi. They were all involved with a particular intergalactic crime lord slug named Jabba the Hutt, as I'm sure you've guessed. So I spoke to Toby Philpot, puppeteer, Dave Barkley, puppeteer, and John Coppinger, who supervised the build and the sculpt of Jabba um, within Stuart Freeborn's workshop there down in Elstree. Um, I've spoken to Dave and Toby before, but it was the first time I'd spoken to John. I really appreciated them uh, taking the time to, to chat with me once again. It was recorded over two different evenings. The first time it was just Toby and John. David had some issues with his computer and wasn't able to join us. And then the following week, exactly one week later, Dave was able to join us. So there will be occasional little bit of repetition in there. Um, and there'll be a moment or two where Dave doesn't get involved talking about things and it's because he wasn't there at the time. Dave and I have known each other for a number of years now. We actually met up for lunch back in uh, February last year for dinner out in Burbank while I was there briefly and uh, yeah, he's a generous guy as is Toby and, and John and I have conversed over text and messenger for, for some years trying to clarify some things on different documentaries that I've done. Um, I hope you enjoy the chat and I'll be back at the end for a bit more jabbering see what I did there. I've always loved the idea of like a team coming together. In fact, those are some of my kind of favourite films and favourite books where you get a group of disparate people together. So I love the idea of you guys being brought together because of a giant gangster slug. <laughs> and it's hard, to, it's hard to predict one's future, but who would have thought we'd be here, you know, 38 years later and you'd be talking to a geek on a computer screen during a pandemic about that that very that very moment. So, John, tell me about your kind of path to working on Return or Revenge of the Jedi, as it would have been then, back in 1982. What, what led you there? It was, of course, nepotism. I went to college with um, Brian Froud, who's a fairly well-known artist, and he was the concept designer on The Dark Crystal. So an awful lot of people started on, on The Dark Crystal with Bruce Sharman, who was the producer, getting us all tickets. Because, you know, it was the film industry was such a strange animal then. It was full of nephews and nieces and sons and daughters and granddads and so on. Um, so a lot of us got in, I think including Toby, um, on that film, on The Dark Crystal. So my first real job was, um, I knew Stuart Freeborn was going to be working on Star Wars 2, uh, as you say, called Revenge at the time. Um, so I posted a, a begging letter um, as late as I could on the day before he came back from somewhere so that my begging letter would be on top of the pyramid. <laughs> whether that was <laughs> whether that made any difference, but he gave me an interview and he liked what I'd done at the Natural History Museum, so I, I got the job. I didn't know I was going to be making a 15-foot slug. 
didn't know what I was going to be doing. <laughs> so when and, and Toby, you you your path. Uh, we've talked before, obviously, for a couple of things over the years, and we've met up a few times. And I know your story, but some of the listeners won't, of course. So you you had a background in entertainment and juggling and performance. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about that and how you ended up in the same place as John in 1982? Yes, well. During the 70s, I worked as a street performer, um, as an acrobat and a juggler and, and did magic and things like that. And I was learning all the all the relevant skills that I could think of, you know, um, and that included masks and mime. Um, I even did a couple of bits of puppetry um, in, in some small fringe theatre shows. So it was my mime teacher who actually um, called me up one day and said, there's an advert in the trade paper in the stage for um, people to animate uh, big creatures for the Muppets. It was actually for the Dark Crystal, not for the Muppet Show, but uh, we didn't know that. And it just said acrobats, mimes, dancers, clowns, because they didn't know exactly what they wanted. They hadn't, um, you know, there were no people with previous relevant skills. So it was was just finding someone who they thought could do that. And uh, I think the, the mixture that I had of physical fitness from being an acrobat and expressiveness from mime and masks and, and puppets, um, you know, was was all relevant skills. I didn't realise I'd spent about eight years actually practising and training for that part, you know, for that job. And Jim Henson and Frank Oz, obviously you couldn't go and audition because you didn't have a big costume and you, you know, there, there was nothing to demonstrate really. So what they did was get us in a room with a few old heads and masks and bits of puppets and so on and improvise a workshop just uh, just um, almost the way you would if you were rehearsing characters when the costumes were made we didn't know of course that some of the costumes had already been built and they were just looking for people to put inside them but at the time we literally thought we were in pre-production and just uh, improvising from scratch well i got through that process um I felt very at home. I mean, I thought, well, if nothing else, I'm studying puppetry with the Grand Masters, you know. I mean, so I wasn't nervous. It wasn't like, oh, I must get the job, or, you know, I, I, I mustn't do anything wrong. I just literally had glee every time, because they called us back a couple of times. Um, I was just really enjoying the workshop process. And, of course, for team performances like that, they they pick people who look like they're individually creative but also team players you know capable of taking instruction and so on anyway i i i passed the uh, the audition and um originally i thought it was just to play these big creatures the the mystics and the gartham because they were so uncomfortable the puppeteers didn't want to do them well once we were on the film um we also got assigned to one of the muppet uh, puppeteers as support um because these were three and four man puppets and I got picked to be on Jim Henson's team. I'm not quite sure how, but, uh, you know, it was a true honour to be stuck in his armpit all day. Um, when he was when he was doing his characters, I'm doing either the eyes or the left hand, or, you know. Um, so I, I learnt both film and puppets from Jim Henson on The Dark Crystal. And we worked not only in pre-production, but on the whole film from day one to the, to the wrap, several months anyway. Uh, so when um, when it came to the Jabber thing, I was literally called into the office. I didn't do anything. I didn't apply for the job. I, I knew the next film in was, was going to happen. 
But I'd never been in the film business and I didn't know how you did it. You know, I didn't have an agent or anything. Well, I got called in by a producer who just said, uh, you know, we're doing this big creature. Do you want to do it? And I I thought I'd been talent spotted. It turned out later that Dave Barkley had already been chosen as chief puppeteer and had asked for me as co-pilot. But I didn't know that until I went to Celebration 3 in 2004 when Dave told me. I'd spent 20 years thinking that I'd been talent spotted. <laughs> <laughs> I operate Jabba's right arm and the jaw of his mouth and I do the, the voice at the moment to uh, make the lip sync and uh, between Toby and myself we do the body movements the rocking of the, of the whole figure and Yeah, well, I'm, I'm the silent brain hemisphere I either do the left hand and the tongue and uh, that goes in here and my right hand is free inside the head and uh, basically works this head control, tipping it left and right, front and back and up and down. I have one other control that can swivel the head, revolve it. And um, for certain shots, I have things like the tongue here, my hand goes. I have a couple of cable controls that do snarls around the mouth. And um, using my feet and the weight of my body, I, I share with David the job of actually moving the body about. Dave, uh, how did you get involved with Jabba the Hutt? What was your path that led you to, to him? I was working at the Jim Henson Creature Shop that we were doing all the promotional stuff, uh, exhibition figures, and uh, trying to get everything ready for Dark Crystal to be released. When I got a call from Stuart Freeborn, he asked me, would I be interested in supervising the build on the new character called Jabba the Hutt? And I said, I'm terribly sorry, I can't. Um, I'm, I'm booked to Jim Henson and, um, and I've got like another sort of at least six months work. And so now I'm very sorry. I thought, oh, this is terrible. I've turned down uh, an opportunity to do another Star Wars. That's, oh God. So, so <laughs> I, I got on, I did the work on, on the Dark Crystal promotion and um, closer to, I think it was about November, got a call again from Stuart saying, OK, uh, we've got a great team of, of people building Jabba, so that's, that's all worked out well. We wondered whether you would like to be chief puppeteer for Jabba. And I thought, well, that's, that's something I can't turn down, you know. So it's <laughs> like, well, um, I said, well, let me speak to Jim Henson, see what he says, and see if I can get some time off to do this, whether he'd let me break away. So spoke to Jim. Jim said, well, as long as I completed all the work that I had uh, scheduled for that period, then, yes, it'd be, it'd be fine for me to go off and do Jabba. So I, I worked sort of like at, towards the end of uh, getting ready to start Jabba, I was working like seven days a week doing about 14 hours a day at some times to try and get all the work done so I was completely clear so I had had this break to go and film Jabba and so yes I, I, I went in periodically to um, do sort of fittings I think Toby and I went along to have our hands cast to make the uh, the finger capsules that we would be the extensions for Jabba's hands but uh, yes, I was able to clear all the Henson work and, and turn up on set ready to start rehearsing. It feels like you need a T-shirt, Dave, that says, I'm the guy that asked Jim Henson if I could work on a Star Wars movie. I mean, <laughs> if, if there's a better sentence out there, I'm not sure what it is. Um, it's great, though, because a lot of, as you said, John, there's, there's nepotism involved, but I'm sure a lot of the reason for employing the same group of people on many of these films was because you had that kind of shorthand with each other. You were familiar with each other. You knew the personality types of people that you'd worked with. I mean, I myself put a crew together when I work on Formula One and 
I go for yeah. people I know I'm going to get on with because I'm going to be spending a whole bloody season with them or, you know, seasons with them, eating, drinking yeah. and spending a lot of time with them. So um, when did you then first see John uh, Jabba the Hutt as his form? When, when was that first presented to you? That would have been like the Phil Tippett maquette or something, would it? No, it would, exactly that, yeah. No, we went in and we had a script. Um, so people were being sort of uh, earmarked for doing Ewoks. Or, um, but I was put down for Jabba right from the start. There was a kind of prototype clay that I can't honestly remember who had done it, but there was a like a prototype workup, about 10 foot long. Um, but the main thing we had was the lines in the script, um, the name, because we thought, what the hell is a Jabba the Hutt? You know, it just was extremely surreal idea um and and the little maquette from from phil tippett which had a quality about it it was only about seven inches long um so that was the beauty of working in those days i wasn't given a, a you know a cg output and turned into a human million machine it was up to me to work out how to make this thing bigger and not just me of course bob Keane, jez harris other people were there and we discussed how to do it we made mock-ups with me and dave um uh, with we, uh, sorry, me and Bob Keane, um, sort of rocking about in bits of cardboard <laughs> to to see. We actually thought we'd try and get one person in it, and then we thought, no, that's just not going to work. It's we know how big it's got to be because um, Norman Reynolds, the production designer, had already sort of laid out the set and how big his throne was going to be. So it became a, a two-man outfit, and hence torturing um, torturing Dave and Toby. What we did for a living: torture performers, you know. Because Phil Tippett's little maquette was crucial. All the asymmetry and the droopy eyelid and all the sort of character of him was pretty much just scaled up from from Phil's um, Phil's maquette, especially the oval eyes. Um, I probably told you that when I had an argument with Stuart Freeborn on my first proper job because he wanted me to do it with round eyes. So I tried that, knowing it would look like a you know giant frog. Um, and that's where the interior eyes came from. Either Jez or me or someone came up with the idea of interior. Because uh, you had to persuade Stuart. He'd stand looking at you and you, you had to convince him. Um, and, and one or other of us came, I, I'd like to think it was me, but somebody came up with, the, well, yeah, we can have round eyes, but let's put them in the middle of the oval eyes because that's so crucial to his character. And that gave you a whole new dimension of, of expression. You could go maximum on the lids or down on the lids and wide on the iris. You, you could do all sorts of things with the eyes with that extra thing. I got a bollocking from the rest of the um, build crew a couple of times for spending far too long on the eyes. But <laughs> they've got to be right. You know? Yeah. The rest of it can be pink if you want, but if the eyes aren't working... Yeah. Anyway, that was it. They're an absolute key, <laughs> absolutely key part, yeah. Some things work out really well too, because I think one of the eyelids is a little bit sleepy. Yep. And I know mm -hmm. when they were going to try and make it symmetrical, why bother? He's a pirate. He's damaged, you know, and it, it gives him a kind of lopsided leer, you know. Mm, I think you, you might have said that at the time because I remember thinking, damn it, I, you know, I haven't quite got that eyelid right. But I did sculpt him asymmetrically, so in mm. a way we already knew that. that yeah, it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It looked great. He was a beaten up old monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a similar situation with Yoda in Return of the Jedi where the eyes weren't quite looking in the right direction he became a bit boss-eyed I think and actually they ended up going well he's going to die in this scene this is actually good he looks unwell you know so let's, yeah. let's keep it like that so you do have these these happy circumstances don't you where um, <laughs> things you didn't expect really 
yeah, one of one of the things that we had um, discovered in a way on Dark Crystal was the importance of the eyes because you know in the Muppets the performance is purely expressive. I mean, you know, Kermit's eyes are just half ping pong balls. They're not really. It's the head move that does it. Now with with Dark Crystal, Yoda had been the first one where they animated the ears, the eyes, and uh, extended the performance in detail like that. And on Dark Crystal, we'd done a lot of practice with that. The, the eyes were very important. Blinking's important. If you if you blink a lot, you look nervous. If you don't blink at all, you become robotic, or you can be glaring or narrowing your eyes. You know, they're very expressive. I mean, half the human feedback that we use in conversation is is eyes um and and both both blinking and and the eye movements are really important for bringing him to life so we were completely dependent on them but then you see jim henson was completely dependent on me when he was doing his performance he would need me to get the eyes right and we sometimes you were improvising sometimes you would pr prepare a certain move there's a line here i want you to blink and look left you know uh, eventually you became intuitive. Uh, you, you had to kind of do it as a telepathy. You can't keep discussing every little moment. Was it quite a daunting prospect then to realise that you had to make such a large character? What different and new methods did you have to come up with to build something of that size? Because he was the largest puppet ever on screen at that point and yeah. maybe still is. Yeah, possibly, because he, uh, I mean, there's things like the giant T-Rex and so on, but not, not a character puppet that's actually got people inside it and puppeteering it. Um, the time thing, I really should look at my diary. I've got one somewhere. <laughs> we were doing sort of 80, 90, even 100, 120 hour a week, I think, once. Um, so there was a certain amount of panic about, are we going to finish it in time? Which was, you know, a heavy load on, on Dave and Toby because they had almost no time. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything was research and development, absolutely everything. Um, Tom McLaughlin, the, the, you know, the foam genius wizard, um, we still don't know whether he was radioactive or poisonous or what he was, but he, Tom, Tom had found ways of making um, foam that wouldn't collapse if you put it in giant syringes made out of drain pipes, and it wouldn't collapse like a souffle, which foam always used to do. Um, you had to sort of get, slap it in a mould and get it in the oven. Um, Tom developed chemistry to allow us to inject foam into fibreglass and not plaster, which was the, um, the, the, the wisdom at the time. So for a 15-foot thing in plaster moulds, you know, that wouldn't have worked. But, um, yes, there was a lot of R&D. <laughs> it wasn't daunting, it was just fun. I mean, first real job on a film, I suppose, sort of kind of got on merit, not on nepotism. Um, and something about Stuart himself, you know, he was a brilliant guy. Um, he'd, he'd go, no, 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 you can't do it like that. He'd come up with, and then you just sort of look at him for a few seconds and he'd come up with 15 ways you could do it. You know, he's a lovely guy. But he was confident that you were going to be able to pull it off because, I mean, Stuart's obviously very, very experienced having worked on dozens of films and prosthetics and all sorts of things that he'd built over the years and had assembled a very good team that he could trust you being one of those people um that must have been you know a rewarding uh moment to see Jabba finally built and on screen and with the guys oh, inside yeah. yeah absolutely I mean I, I I remember walking off the set with it with one tear in one you know each eye thinking whatever else I do in my life I've been on this set you know <laughs> and as you say I never imagined 38 years later yeah I'd be discussing it like this 
But uh, yes, it was magic at the time. Yeah, it's still magic now. Like I showed my daughter, who's five, Return of the Jedi last year. So she would have yeah just been five then. And she'd seen Jabba the Hutt because I've got like a couple of books of Star Wars around and about. Um, but um, she she was just like, oh, my goodness, what is that thing? You know, and he yes. is he is real. He's he's so real. He's such a fantastic uh, design and the artistic license you and your team had to to go beyond that maquette and create something special. I think it still still survives today. I mean, they've been trying to reproduce it in um, CGI, which we can talk about in a bit, but they still haven't managed to do that. Mm. And, and Toby and Dave, when you when you went to that workshop, had you seen ske- the sketches of Jabba beforehand? Did you know what was what you were in for for the for the next few weeks? I was off in Somerset. I, my son had just been born, and when Dark Crystal finished, I went off to be a parent. You know, and um, although I'd been kind of offered the job, I didn't really have, and except for coming in for fittings, coming back to London just to have fittings for the arm and so on, I'm I was mostly out of the loop, and. Um, I knew it was a big creature, uh, but I'd been doing big creatures for Dark Crystal. I didn't realise he mm-hmm. was a feature player doing scenes with all the major uh, actors in Star Wars. Um, and I suspect I was fairly ill-informed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I suspect Dave might be more in touch with it because he was still uh, around Elstree. Yes, I did get a chance to um, catch up with Stuart a couple of times because uh, he asked me to come in and have a look. I, I, I remember chatting with Bob Keane as he was putting together the mechanical tail. Uh, mechanical tail for Jabba is really quite sophisticated. And I remember Mike Osborne making a special um, like sock that would go over it, specially woven out of, uh, I think, nylon rods, thin nylon rods to hold the support. Amazingly difficult thing to to build and and to get right and uh, and and sadly it's not used in the film that often i mean the, we ended up using the curly tail which was just a sculpted form with the tip operated by someone's forearm which is a really simple way of doing it but that beautiful long tail um uh, so I remember remember going in and seeing that, and then seeing seeing the phenomenal sculpture that that John was uh, I think had pretty much completed by then, and I think they were getting into moulds, turning one of the offices in the main admin block at Elstree Studios, turning that into an oven. The actual room itself was turned into an oven because there was no there wasn't an oven big enough to put all the Jabba foam pieces in. So got <laughs> to see all of that as it was being built. Um, and then, yes, like Toby, I, w- I came back to see the uh, the construction of the internal parts of the hand extensions, so that we could uh, control the the rubber fingers. And uh, and then, yeah, that was that was pretty much about it as far as uh, um, seeing his evolution until the first day of rehearsal when he was almost complete. But Toby, so then you you spent how long inside Jabba with Dave and with Mike? Um, I I think overall it was about five or six weeks Um, but each day it was pretty well all day (laughs) I mean we didn't come out and sit in a chair and rest we sat inside Jabra and rested Um, we'd only got him to play with shortly before shooting so there was very little real rehearsal we rehearsed on the set Mea, mea culpa on that one Yeah, there was a certain panic about I was still painting him when you guys were trying him out so I was covering you in toxic chemicals. <laughs> so during the during the day, we we uh, we would get Richard Markham to tell us what he wanted from us, and then while he, while he and Dave Tomlin and people were doing the lighting and all that 
we would literally rehearse the moves. Um, Dave and I, I mean, basically, Dave and I are, are, the, are the, the, the two-man submarine. Mike was there for wide shots when the tail was waving around. But the, uh, the basic performance is the two of us. I'm doing the left hand, Dave is doing the right hand. Uh, and then my inside hand is moving the head around and doing the tongue. And Dave's inside hand, his left hand, is doing the mouth. And he was also doing the dialogue in English on the set for the actors. That got dubbed later, of course. Most of the performance, we had to talk to the guys outside, either John or, or, or Bob Keane or somebody, whoever was on the radio control for the eyes would also be on our headset. So we would demonstrate a move and then they would give us feedback about whether it was um, sufficient. The real problem being, because of the layers of um, the airbags and the fiberglass and the skin, that what felt like a big gesture inside was a tiny gesture mm. outside, you know. So Dave and I end up flinging ourselves around <laughs> just to get just to get a, a ho 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 or you know whatever it was. Yeah, you you can't imagine what we were doing in there. <laughs> they would they would keep saying bigger, bigger, more, more up, you know. <laughs> so it was very much a team effort. The um, we we never got to see really what the performance we had managed to do was. I, I mean, until I went to the crew showing a year or two later, I didn't really know what I, what we had achieved. Mm. Yeah. Um, some some people got to see the Russian. You know, when I, on Dark Crystal, Jim Henson allowed all the crew to go and see the the dailies, the rushes, so that we could get feedback about what we were achieving and and how best to go about it. But on Star Wars, they weren't going to give the puppeteers the privilege of going in there, you know. But certainly I had no idea what I'd been doing. I mean, I just I just did it. And if David Tomlin said it was OK, it was OK. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> that was a subject for guilt because we did. We, we used to get to the rushes. And we had to get into the studio about 6.30 or 7. Um, and usually we went to see the rushes. So what I don't know is why we never said, hey, where are, the, where are you guys? Because obviously you're crucial. And you should have seen those rushes. As you say, we pretty much got away with making it up as we weren't along on the set. But <laughs> It was, I mean, the, the whole process was very secretive. I mean, you know, we were a major character. If anyone needed feedback on, on their performance, it was us, really. I mean, you know, background characters, okay, they, they can just take direction. I mean, you've got to bear in mind, when I got the job, I didn't really have a script or anything. Um I assumed it was another big, uncomfortable character, same mm. as Dark Crystal. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I had no idea he was going to be on screen for 20 minutes. I didn't know he was the star, that it was Jabba's palace, that he was going to play with every principal performer. You know, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, we've got scenes, Carrie Fisher, Chewbacca, R2-D2. I mean, we we play with everybody. They all meet us. Yeah. I suppose um, we were doing 120-hour weeks at one point. So that's my only excuse for not apologising <laughs> before 38 years. Because you guys should have been. I mean, because we had the long build process and then you came in later. We sort of yeah. threw you inside it. and You were probably sending Toby and Dave for enforced showers after spending, you know, 12 hours inside <laughs> the giant slug. They well, weren't... that's the joke. We, we did talk through the armpit of Jabba for a bit and then gave up on that um, kind of giant rugby sock effect, you know. Yeah, and I always think about the kind of pressure that was on all of you in, in different ways, I'm sure, to make sure this thing worked. You know, it's film is rolling. Um, you know, there's only a finite amount of, of it and there's a certain amount of time. I'm not saying that these days with digital you can just roll forever because you have to, of course, keep to a schedule of things. But um, with film, it's even more um, pressurised that you, you get it right and you nail it. 
how do you, how do you sort of walk into that situation and deal with that pressure? Is with having not a huge amount of rehearsal time, is it just you know you just have to be confident of your own abilities that John you've built it to to last for the shoot and Dave and um, Toby that you've you've got confidence in your ability to do it. A lot of the other guys from Dark Crystal gave us a almost like a, a regular workman's day approach to anything in the, in the movie. We'd spent six months making the Dark Crystal, which was very technically difficult, and developed new ways of uh, teams working together, um, all developed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. So this was very fresh in our minds. So it almost it felt like we were just coming off of a regular day, sort of trying to get stuff working for Jim into a Star Wars film. It was a different atmosphere on set there was a lot more sense of urgency but I think mm. we were just um I think we're all much younger than we are now and we just <laughs> took it in our stride yeah if you if you imagine that I'd got over my fear mm. six months before of being stuck in Jim's armpit doing the other hand because <laughs> uh, Dave was chief puppeteer right he's doing the voice and mm -hmm. my job is only to support that and to animate it uh, I didn't have the same responsibility because I'm not delivering the lines. Uh, I'm just bringing the thing to life and, and matching the hands and all that sort of stuff. So having done several months of that next to Jim Henson, as Dave said, it became a day job. You know, You're, it's yeah. still anxious, of course, because when they say action, you've got t 10 seconds to get it right. You know, I mean, it's, you know, if you get it right, it's going to be in the movie forever. So, you know, mm. there is that kind of pressure. Uh, and they don't want to do too many retakes, of course. If you can get it in one, that's perfect. But quite often they don't get it in one, and it's not your fault. It's someone else's, you know, the lighting or the sound or something. So you just have to keep churning out uh, a sufficiently good performance so that they can pick one where everyone more or less get it, got it right. You know? Yeah, because there's a lot going on in those scenes, isn't yeah. there? There's a lot of stuff going on in the background, different people dressed up as different characters. And Dave... Uh, Toby mentioned that you did the voice for Jabba yes. and there are some fantastic recordings of you giving it some and, and getting into <laughs> character there. I mean, how did you how did you imagine what he might end up sounding like and what did you think of uh, the final result there? Oh, I loved his final voice. I mean, my voice is way too high. It's always I've always had a high pitched voice since um, uh, my voice broke. It broke high and that was it. That's It's been like that for all my life. And it's like, well, this isn't suitable for Jabba. But I was like on so many of the um, the animatronic films at, at the time, the puppeteers would only give a guide voice, even most of the characters on Dark Crystal. Uh, when Jim Henson would do the voice, it would be overdubbed. So we were. it was, again, a normal thing to do a guide mm -hmm. voice. But you try to get the rhythm and the sense of the voice, even if the pitch and the, the style of voice isn't, isn't correct. So I try to... Um, they, I, I remember Richard Marquand uh, loved it that I called it Chewbacca, uh, which is very <laughs> British rather than Chewbacca, which is how the Americans pronounce it. So he thought that was an interesting <laughs> twist on uh, Jabba's pronunciation. We'll bring Captain Solo and the Wookiee to me. Your mind powers will not work on me, boy. I am not affected by your human thought patterns. I was killing your kind back when it meant something to be a Jedi. Was there any ever a, a, an attempt to kind of do it in Hatties as it ended up being called? Was, or was it always in English, that part of uh, Jabba's, Jabba's lines? 
Jabba's very first two words, Boshuda, we did that, and that was scripted in Hatties, um, which I, we were told meant, meant like greetings. So we actually did do Boshuda. But then every line after that was in English because the actors couldn't, couldn't keep up with the, the foreign language, of course, and they wouldn't know what, they, what was being said um, from Jabba. So everything else afterwards was, uh, was well, in English. We didn't. We didn't know until we saw the cruise show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, literally, we saw it on the big screen with Dolby sound. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. We, if we saw rushes, it was obviously it was yeah, days. Yeah. You know, that, none of that dubbing had been done. Yeah, but well, that's what people don't realise. I think when they when you talk about rushes and dailies, they can look pretty crap, can't they? You know, mm. and it's, yeah. it takes yeah, yeah. a leap of imagination yeah, yeah. to get to that point. But I think that final voice is fantastic, and I've never really seen one reproduced in a film like that that really befits the character you know it really seems part of Jabba to me the thing about Jabba it's not just the voice it's the uh, the sound of him Ben Burt mixed the sound and the squelchy noises and the the heavy breathing and all that sort of stuff is actually is actually Ben Burt's uh, gift uh, Howie Hammerstein did the burp I mean, if you if you had a if you had a full Jabba, yeah. it's about fifteen people. Yeah. You know the, the number of credits that that go on there. Um, Larry Ward would it well, have been? That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. You must have got an echo inside him or something, because I remember you sounding pretty deep voiced with Jabba, especially when he got annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean the whole team thing was uh, kind of generated on the fly. So it really came from Dave and Toby's experience. They worked together. They got the movement of the body. Um, if he was punching Bib Fortuna or whatever he was doing, um, we just had to try and follow. Uh, we knew how the radio sets worked. Obviously, we'd played with those, so we were familiar with where the levers were and which eye was moving. Um, but obviously, if Jabba swings round, he's pissed off and his eyes have got to be flaring. Um, we've just got to follow what the two guys inside were doing. And hopefully the time lag wasn't enough to... We got away with it. We moved quick enough <laughs> to, to that's follow also their lead. A, that, that yeah, that's a really important part, though, John, is that um, some of the animatronics in various films, the mechanisms don't move fast enough to be able to keep up mm. with the performers. And I, I've, I've been on the end of that on a number of different characters. But uh, the work that you did and Jez and everybody did and Bob Keane on building those the animatronic servo motors meant that... Um, the mechanisms would keep up with the performance. And I think that was, again, uh, a great lesson learned from Dark Crystal, although very little servo work was used on Dark Crystal. It was all cable stuff. So, mm. so again, in a way, yeah. you were pushing the boundaries of, of the animatronic build for Jabba. That pretty much came from Bob Keane and Jez Harris. You know, they were, I was working on the eyes, but it was Jez who was actually building them. And I'm pretty sure it's Bob suggested using radio because um, what else could we do? We, we tried cables, actually, for the movement around the lips. I had a sort of piano-keyboard arrangement, which didn't really work, because things like the tail mechanism, that was sort of a, a brand-new concept. How are we going to make this tail move? But the, the execution of it was rubbish. It was made out of splintery plywood and Halford's bike cables and bonder paste, but the concept was there and it worked, so... Well, it very much sounds like a Bob Keane mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Back in the day. Some, yeah. Something similar turned up on uh, Little Shop of Horrors, though, all the tentacles on the plant. Uh, we worked in a hole in the ground, and we, had, we each had a gimbal, which, you know, translates the movement into three dimensions, and there was one puppeteer on each tentacle. But it was very much like that tail that Mike Edmonds was operating. 
Well, I remember sitting about mm. thinking, how do we do this? You know, it was basically a set of stops on three cables and then two complete separate cable systems. So it became an off-the-shelf concept. Um, the trunk for the baby elephant on Little Buddha was exactly the same idea. And we oh. sort of sat around, mostly Bob and Jez, I think, saying, well, um, we've got a central spine, which was something like a giant fishing rod. Um, but where are we going to stop the cables so you get a sequential movement? As I say, nowadays it would probably all be in beautifully machined aluminium and we made it out of bond to paste and <laughs> bits and pieces. But the concept worked. and that's, that's... I think that's why that video I did with Toby some years ago was so successful and got picked up by so many sites because people go, hang on, what, wait, hang on, there's people in there? You know, <laughs> yeah. they just had no idea. And that's testament to the work that all of you did to make this convincing character feel like a cohesive, singular thing. You know, it was made up of all these component parts, but it really does come together. I love that footage of, of Dave and Toby inside Jabba with the big, like, CRT monitors around your necks. Um, I mean, these days, you probably have a little pinhole camera that would give you exactly what, you were doing you know a shot of what you were doing but I believe that that camera was way up in the rafters almost and just gave you a kind of wide a wide view of what you were doing how difficult was it to, to therefore kind of get some feedback as to whether what you were doing was what the director wanted well we we had been spoiled but working on the dark crystal um where puppets you know were what the director was familiar with and, and planning on the Muppets had worked on tv and they tried to make sure that all puppeteers could have a monitor and literally see what the camera was shooting. So you'd know if you were in the in the frame, you'd know if you're in the centre of the frame or in the background. So they were actually seeing through the lens. And it wasn't always possible. I mean, in the Mystics and the Gartham, we worked blind. We, we re rehearsed the moves with the heads off and then uh, just went for it. But for the main puppeteering, there was usually a monitor somewhere nearby where you could actually see the shot and when it was played back of course you could watch yourself and improve the performance on a second take and so on well on star wars they weren't going to um, work for the puppeteers if you see what i mean they, were, they had a lot more things going on than that uh i don't know exactly where that camera was but it was somewhere in the roof it was more like a cctv camera it was just a camera shot of jabba so it wasn't looking out from jabba's eyes towards the other performers and it had no depth of field. I mean, we we really couldn't use it much, except for the, the, the basics, you know, like hand gestures synchronising and that sort of thing. Well, originally, from from my recollection, we actually we tried to get a video tap from the camera to see what Jabba was uh, doing. But they had, unlike the Dark Crystal, where I think Jim had got the very best video tap that you could you could get, they had a very poor video tap. So we got the we had our four and a half inch chest monitors, and we could see basically nothing of Jabra from the video tap. It was just like snow, and it's like, well, I, I can't see his eyes, let alone um, where they're looking, you know. So, so I think it was Ian Kelly who was uh, did, did all the videos for all those films over the years. I think he uh, had a as you say, like a surveillance camera that we put up in, in the lighting rig and then we could actually see him. We could actually see Jabba so we could see our arms but that did mean when we did close-ups we didn't see through the lens of the camera. We still had this wide shot of us so we didn't, we very, we didn't really know what the performance was going to look like until we saw the film because again, unlike Dark Crystal where all the puppeteers got to see rushes every day, 
we didn't get to see rushes, I think, hardly ever for Jabba. So we, we, we couldn't learn by watching rushes. We just, um, I think, got better muscle memory. <laughs> but in, when you're inside Jabba there and Toby's on the left, Xavier on the right, are you looking at each other to kind of synchronise together? Or is it just you did it so many times you could kind of, you know, do it by rote almost? You just repeat the process. Uh, well, we would look at each other. We would chat briefly after being told what it was that the director wanted. We would discuss it, but not just me and Dave. It would be Mike as well, and through the through the headset, talking to the guys working the eyes and so on. So the whole team would talk on our own loop about what we were going to try. Um, but then once you start actually doing the movements, you it's almost telepathic. There's no there's no eye contact. You literally absorb yourself. I mean you. We would try and look at the monitor, but it wasn't much help. So we're effectively working blind, and um, it's extraordinary that it came out as good as it did, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because again, when when you're doing a close-up, you often pull the performance way back because obviously you don't want to be moving too much. In an extreme wide shot, you want to do a, you want to be a little larger in the movement so it reads better in camera. But so I guess we again we'd had that experience having. Um, had really good feedback on Dark Crystal, having a sense of what to do for which size of shots. So, um, But we didn't always know what size the shots were. From time to time, they'd run two cameras. And uh, yeah. so we, we would just we'd perform the best we could and hope that they grabbed what they needed. Yeah, for, for a giant slug, he had a, an amazing range of movement, really. I mean... There are, there's the Lapti Neck uh, music video and part of in, in Return of the Jedi as well. There's those moments where he's like having a little dance and a bop around. And, um, you know, he seems, I, I think as a kid, I kind of looked at him thinking, look, he doesn't look like he can move that easily from there. So he must be super powerful if everyone's still bowing around him. And he, that in, in some ways, his limitations... Uh, add to his menace somehow as well. What you did manage to pull off with the the articulation and the performance, I think, has always sort of astounded me. And I think, um, as I said, people are always amazed by that when they realise there are three people in there at some point. So, how many people involved overall? Then, do you think in the team that were working on a on a daily basis with Jabba? There was an average of about eight because there were two or three people underneath. With Mike Edmonds, when the tail was working, there was Dave Toby and Mike inside. And, of course, Mike Quinn was in there for the death scene, but Mike um, Mike um, wasn't for the tail. But, uh, yeah, and there was uh, two of us out front. And the lucky third, who had to go and put the snot up the nose. So the last person in each day got the, got the snot job. Um, I was always in first. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing the video of that, the big syringes of it going, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, that job of of, of smoking uh, the cigar for the make the smoke for Jabba's pipe. That um, oh, God, I love yeah. that moment in the documentary. <laughs> smoke from this cigar is for Jabba. When he smokes his pipe, I blow it up the tube, and it trickles out of the corner of his mouth. If I was drinking port, it would be a perfect job. I offered. Um... Richard Pabry a, a cigar in the bar after that day. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't kill me. Cause it's... <laughs> but he... <laughs> Been through a few already, yeah. yeah. Um, I, one of the things that is always amazing to me is when you find 
a prop or an item from a movie that's kind of that long ago that has, has survived. And of course, many of the things that were built for Return of the Jedi in that era weren't built to last. Is there anything of Jabba remaining? Well, as far as I know, it's pretty much just the hard parts, like the eye mechanism, I think, still exists. Um, some of his, I think they, ILM still may have some of his uh, mechanical subframe here. There's a turntable with steel support bars that the fiberglass um, body unit went on, and maybe parts of that um, plywood tail, but um, all the foam has gone years ago. All the foam latex is rotted, so... Um, there's uh, one of the reasons I think when they started doing Phantom Menace, uh, they decided to do a CG Jabber because they literally they couldn't just bring out the old Jabber and use him. So they would have to have mm. rebuilt him from scratch pretty much. So, And he's not a patch in, uh, on the original, in my opinion. I mean, you know, I don't want to go too far into the debate of CG versus physical, but I think, you know, having watched the films side by side, relatively recently because my kids have kind of just discovered star wars um yeah the the physical jabber your jabber is by far the most successful i think as a as a as a character it just i don't know it just doesn't sit right and that, those i spoke to paul hirsch actually for the podcast um a few weeks ago who edited star wars and the empire strikes back and he talked to me briefly about that scene where jabber was reinserted into the original movie um in a scene that was originally played by a a large, uh, a large actor, Declan Mulholland, and he said that he has no issue about scenes that were left out, like the introduction of Luke Skywalker scenes that were left out. He has problems with the scenes that were put back in, <laughs> and that was one of them. He said because it doesn't work, it looks awful, and uh, you know it repeats a scene that was already there with Greedo, etc., etc. Was there ever any discussion, as far as you know, to have a physical jabber? uh in any of the other movies um because you know i think everybody kind of wants him to come back or want i think you know the mandalorian series could have been a good opportunity to do something like that i haven't heard anything um whether there's going to be um any more jabbers i mean i think they were trying to um do the um solo story i think because they were thinking of of possibly setting that up for a jabber which he, he didn't appear in that but as possibly but um who knows i mean i don't know i haven't been involved of those films all i remember from jedi is that there was originally going to be a go motion stop motion version of jabber getting off of his plinth hmm. that um really Phil tippett was going to animate and i think it was all hmm. built and i may have even done i don't know if they did some tests but in the end they decided it was again a bit like what what Paul Hirsch was saying that you don't need that you don't need to see that he's just suddenly mm. in another place so mm. um, yeah yeah and it's you just assume that he has lots of helpers or there's a technology around to kind of help him move from one scene to the other it sort of doesn't matter because the character's so strong and the dialogue is so strong that you kind of you make that you you make that leap without worrying about it so when it came to that moment on the on what was the barge set um, where Jabba was you know strangled by princess leia that was that looked pretty heavy going there she 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 really gave it some with jabba was jabba damaged at that point um jabba had actually um we were thrashing him around so much that um the part of the back fiberglass had cracked um because uh, to get into jabba for for that sequence we actually got through two little trap doors in his back um because uh, for the for the bulk of the other sequences we got got in from underneath um, Jabba's 
so underneath the, his stomach, basically, from underneath the set. But for um, doing th that, that barge sequence, we got in through the back and it actually um, it, it cracked while we were thrashing him around. So I remember Mike Osborne came in with uh, a whole series of towels that he put over his shoulder and actually physically held it up during the last couple of takes while, were, while Jabba was broken in the back. So, yes, we really, really did destroy him. <laughs> Oh yes, no, we had to repair him, when he, especially when he was killed. I mean, I, I spent, I had to run in with a hairdryer and a, a tub of Evo stick <laughs> because Carrie Fisher, so uh, she did such a good job of cutting his neck open, I had to go and glue it all back together after each take. Yeah. <laughs> and was he just disposed of then in a skip out the back of Elstree somewhere? No, I think they were, he actually was repaired in case we needed to come back and do other stuff. But um, I, in my recollection, that was some of the last um, sequences we shot with Jabba. He did last quite a time. He was in a warehouse and when I was on Greystoke. I remember going and having a word with him before he was skipped. It's funny you say about playing with the major characters in the film because, you know, people always ask that question, I'm sure. You know, what was Mark Hamill like? What was Carrie Fisher like? Of course, you were you know, centimetres from them in some cases, but of course, through the, yes. the latex and the fibreglass and whatever else, you didn't really get to interact with them other than through the character of Jabba, really. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, with, with a puppet, normally, if it was just Kermit, of course, they can see the puppeteer. The thing about mm. Jabba, he's so sealed in that they are literally talking to Jabba. Mm. I mean, that's what we said. Talk to the puppet. Don't, don't talk to us as individuals. No, nobody on the set really knew who we were. We would go in in the morning and we would just be there in our street clothes. Everyone else is made up and costumes and, you know, we, we were just sitting inside and then we would just climb out and go home. And it, that's <laughs> I always think how uncomfortable that must have been at the end of each day. I mean, did you have backache and did you have to have an ice bath or you know, what was what was it like in there? Um, no, I mean, one of... One of the advantages for us was that we were not wearing him. We are just sitting inside him like a cave. So I think Dave worked a bit harder than I did. I was actually sitting down. I had a little stool, a little perch. So once we climbed in from underneath, I would perch uh, on that. And by because of that leverage, you know, my legs were on, on this kind of revolving platform so I could swing the body around. Dave tells me he was standing all day on a box so that after we climbed after he climbed in and was sort of level with me but he was um basically standing up so his day was longer than mine i mean i you know you you do get a bit tired just from staying in the same position but uh yeah no i i i, I didn't suffer physically too badly I mean, I felt relatively comfortable. I went out talking to the Gamorian guards and people, and they were going from freezing cold to boiling, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and someone like Bib Fortuna, like Mike Carter, was in makeup at 6.30 to be on set at 9.30. That's three hours in makeup, you know. Yeah, and then be in it all day with contacts and teeth. And then and be everything. in it. Well, yeah, I mean, all, all, of, all of that. Yeah. Um, I suspect they didn't make him do the whole day. Mm. You know, I think we shot in chunks. But of course, if it takes that long to put it on, you want to get as much in the can as you can. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to keep doing it day after day. Yeah. So he, I mean, I know I didn't recognise him till I met him at a convention in Paris in in uh, two thousand and something four. You know, uh, I finally saw what Mike Carter looked like. Because <laughs> he's, he's quite he's quite a shy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
absolutely, he's an actor, you know, he's, he's one of those introvert actors, nothing like the person that I'd been performing with. Yeah. Well, we were <laughs> slightly sleep deprived by the time we were shooting, and I remember getting on really well with Big Fortuna, and then went for a drink with Mike Carter, and it was slightly awkward, because he's quite a quiet, shy man. <laughs> so what, what would a typical day have been for you guys then, like in terms of call time and rap time? I've got the call... Yeah, I've got call sheets somewhere. I should have dug those out. But I think we started around about 7.30. Mm -hmm. I know my first job usually, which I grabbed sort of, was to get on set and change the batteries for the eyes and test them. Mm. And that's my standard convention story, that he frightened the life out of me every morning when I did that. Because I'd walk back 20 feet and fire the eyes up. And it literally made me jump. And I was thinking, this is insane. I just did that. <laughs> but the fucking thing... Sorry, I didn't... That's fine. But... The lovely creature woke up and stared at me aggressively. <laughs> and it did, you did have that Jesus reaction to it. Yeah, especially when you're <laughs> the only other one in the room, I guess, yeah. Well, yes, that's right, on a sort of cold morning, you know, with just this green monster staring at you and obviously really pissed off because I'd gone maximum on everything to check it. <laughs> we, we actually had quite an easy time. I mean, my call sheets say that I had to arrive at 8 and be on set at 8.30 because no makeup. Mm. Street clothes. I mean, I think we sometimes changed into, you know, a tracksuit or something comfortable for mm. the day. But essentially, street clothes. If I if I'd arrived late, I could have just dived in and kept going. So yeah, it was just on set for eight thirty, and then work through till six. I think most huh. most days, mm. with a couple of tea breaks and a lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. We knew it was pretty acrobatic because the whole thing was on a big turntable, which I'd ordered from someone who supplies car showrooms. Hmm. So, you know, the, the turntable itself was a fairly massive bit of engineering. You had those funny little stalls that we made for you. That, yeah. Because it was a lot of heavy work to make that thing move. You know, the, the body sure. was floating on trampoline springs. There were yep. posts coming off the turntable and then trampoline springs going back down to the fiberglass inner. Yep. So yep. you had to sort of have one foot on the floor and one on the turntable, I guess, to, yeah. to, yeah, to yeah. kick him around. So I think I was doing most of the body. I mean, I, I'm sure Dave helped because obviously his, his shoulder was in the arm and so on. But essentially his, he was doing the main performance. He's doing the talking mm. and, and all that. Um, so it was really my job to animate the rest of it, the body and the arm and the head. Well, you, Plus, had, the lever all... you had the leverage because yeah. you were on that side, yeah, away exactly. from the tail. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah ex exactly, away from the tail. So, you know, it was my job to, to do the turns. He doesn't turn very much. It's, like no. I said, <laughs> what, what feels like a huge thing inside is actually a minimal thing. Yeah. But it, it all adds to that um, that feeling that he's alive. You know, there, there are just even little moves that are a very important part of it. Yeah. He's a slob. He can't move fast or, you know, he's no. not going to... He can hardly turn his head, you know. I mean, he's, he's just, you know, that that's... But that's who he is. Yeah. He couldn't... Actually, one thing is he, he couldn't look down into the pit when Luke falls into the pit. Mm. And that, oh, that's, that's what really impressed me with David Tomlin. Because we'd put everything on maximum for him to look down in the pit and he wasn't quite doing it. And David Tomlin said to me, can we push him? Can I put someone behind him and push him? And I was, we tried that. And, you know, this is a David Tomlin story, that, but he's an amazing guy. Um, I said, well, we tried that, and what is likely to happen is the fiberglass will come off the trampoline springs, and that the danger then is it might burst the big airbag that's making his belly wobble. Uh -huh. And Dave, I know, knew what I meant. He'd been around the workshop once, and you think of the vast complexity of stuff he was dealing with, 
And he knew what I meant, and he said, right, we'll do it then. <laughs> and I knew that if it well went wrong and the airbag burst, he'd just have us crumpling newspaper up, and then we'd fix it overnight. Mm. So, you know, I knew that he, A, he understood me, B, he took the responsibility for taking that risk. Yeah. And so a couple of prop guys went and gave him a good shove from behind, I think, is what happened. <laughs> and it jumped the springs, as predicted, but we got away with it, and the airbag didn't burst. Dave Tomlin's an interesting guy. He's somebody who I've never seen interviewed. Obviously, he passed away some years ago now, but he's always been... Spielberg called him the best second unit director in the world or first AD in the world or whatever it was. Mm. Um, he seemed to be one of those guys that just got shit done. Like, yeah. But yes. but also yeah, yeah. understood the the dangers and the tolerances he could work within. You know, yeah. You're talking about a man who wrangled hundreds, if not thousands, of extras on some movies. And like you think of Raiders of the Lost Ark with sorting out all those people in the in the Tunisian towns and he was quite a character wasn't he with his cowboy hat and and everything a formidable formidable guy I think he'd just been on Gandhi not long before and he talked about I think I talked to him once and he'd been running god knows how many tens of thousands of extras I think he had Indian policemen on walkie-talkies so he was coordinating with them and using a bullhorn to, to talk to the, the main groups of people that would then pass the message on. But you're still using the bullhorn yeah. on that tiny set. Yeah. <laughs> but he's he you know, he was a creative as well. I mean the oh, reason yeah. I was overawed for to be working with him was because I was a big fan of The Prisoner. Mm. And he'd he'd not only written some of the episodes yeah. but directed them. So he was perfectly capable of, of understanding the creative side of it. You know, he wasn't just a sergeant major. Mm. Yeah, I know. He, you know. Efficient though he was, mm. he uh, he really appreciated what the director wanted. I mean, he, mm. perfect, yeah. perfect AD. Well, I, I don't have a platinum disc on my wall, but what I have is a memory of David Tomlin literally barging through us. The, my, um, I think there was Jess and Bob Keane and me um, and whoever the luckless person was that was doing the snot that day. So there was a little <laughs> gang. <laughs> there was a little gang of us and... David Tomlin literally but sort of bowled through us like um, ten pin bowling. Yeah. But as he went, he gestured back with his thumb and went, You've done a good job on that thing. And I, Jesus Christ, that is platinum coming <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I've carried that as a major moment in film all my life. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember the day of George being on set and kind of inspecting? Because I, I remember seeing that video clip. He's in his big kind of sheepskin coat and he's, you know, pointing away at Jab. I think you're hovering around there somewhere, John. You know, mm. it must have been a bit of a moment when the boss arrives to kind of scrutinise what he looks like in front of camera. I'm pretty sure from the photos that we, we talked to him briefly, he, was, he would have been with Norman Reynolds, I think. Um and we talked about the colour and I was still painting them and I think Dave and Toby were inside. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I seem to remember that... It's very vague memory, but I think I seem to remember someone did whisper George is on the set uh-huh. to us through our headphones. But, of course, rather than feel we were going to meet him or confront him, we just felt duty-bound to keep Jabber looking good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess we just carried on acting, um, keep him alive and, you know... Yeah, yeah. If if he's wandering around looking at it and and, and seeing how good it is, um, we just keep going. Mm. So I didn't have any personal nerves about meeting the boss. 
Um, but it was nice when they said he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a memory of him saying the money men want me to keep on making Star Wars and I want to do something else, which I assume was Raiders. Huh. Right. I got the sequence right there. Uh, Raiders um, came before that, but he would have done Temple of Doom, the second one, after. Oh, yeah. so I think he wanted yeah. to carry on and do more. Because yeah. obviously all the mythology is that he had the nine scripts in mind. Yeah. Mm. But, um, yeah. but I just have this memory of him saying that. Huh. Um, talking about the kind of the, the time that came after Jabba the Hutt, I mean, you guys have done the convention circuit for a number of years now. When, when was the first time you realised, hang on a minute, this, this kind of exists as a thing t- to be involved with? Well, I think you did, did them before me, Toby, yeah. Yeah, for me, when I moved to Cardiff, uh, working with the circus and so on, I moved out of London and there was a, a local bunch of geeks, a sci-fi um, group, who discovered me working in the library and asked me to go and talk to their 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 little group. That was the very first thing. I, I don't remember exactly how they found out about me, but anyway, that was that was the first event, and that was about 1999. Well, my job became working on the internet, so I put up a website and so on, and was immediately contacted by someone with a web page to do a, an interview, uh, like a typed interview, not a not talking. Uh, and they were the first... I think that, that woman there was the first person to tell me about conventions. But I also didn't know where to go at the time. Um, so for about a year or so, I was aware of it but didn't do anything. Now, I did an interview recently, and Steve Grad, who does authentication of, of autographs now, uh, is quite big in the geek you know, economy, if you want... He actually contacted me in about 2002 saying he was coming to England and he was going around meeting people to get autographs. And he arranged to come and visit me in my house. Um, He and three or four friends turned up on my doorstep one day, sort of unannounced, you know, not on, and came in. And we spent two hours with me signing photos and posters and things like that and then paying me cash and going away. And that was the first time that I went, oh, wait a minute, what? Wow, what? Uh, And uh, shortly after that, uh, a a Danish friend of mine said, get some photos made up um, and there's a convention that you can can go to. Now, the photos I had done up were really bad. I I didn't realise, but we didn't have any decent graphics. The internet wasn't that sophisticated. And I'm, you know, I had 200 printed up like, like actors' publicity shots. But they were grainy and terrible. I look at them now and they're, they're toe-curlingly bad. Because um, <laughs> I hadn't been to a convention. So I went to this convention and I saw all these high-quality photos people had. And I sat there. Uh, but, you know, it was Toby's uh, first world appearance. So obviously I had a line <laughs> of people, all of whom went away slightly disappointed. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I rapidly got it together then. I mean, I, my Danish friend said to me, no, those are rubbish. You know, you, you've seen now. You, you've got to get some nice pictures. And I didn't have the technology, so he did it for me, Michael Nielsen, um, who's still a good friend. And he he basically packaged me. He told me, you know, this is what you'll need. Um, he did the graphics. He made the, the pictures up. And he networked me in. Uh, and then it just grew and grew. Um and I think Dave and I met up at, at Official Picks Celebration 3. I'm not sure which year that was. Yes, I think so. I think that was the first time we did one together. Um, 
Uh, I think Mike Edmonds had called me before. I moved out to the States in 99. I think he called me before saying, oh, we, there's lots of um, conventions, so you, you've got to get involved with this, Dave. So I said, oh, I'm just too busy. I was I was really working like 24-7 um, doing stuff. Um, I said, no, no, I can't, I can't think about doing that. Um, but I think Karen Prell introduced me to Derek Mackey in about 2000, 2001, something like that, in the US. He was working in the comic book store. And... Um, and so I, and I said, oh, well, I'll give it a try. I'll give a convention a try. But before I did one with, with Derek, I did one for Jesper Iceberg in uh, Norway, I think it is. And that was just an, an, an incredible experience. It's just like insane. And so and I thought, oh, well, this is fun. This is fun. So, um, And, uh, of course, this year I've had more, I had more conventions booked in this year than I'd ever had ever because of uh, Empire Strikes Back being 40 and I'd built a, a Yoda uh, animatronic puppet to take with me for, um, for to show folks and of course they've all been cancelled because of Covid. <laughs> Such a shame isn't it yeah I had my busiest year ahead I think and lots of uh, lots of work lined up that's disappeared very very quickly. Uh, one thing I was going to say about the conventions is that one would assume at some point you reach saturation point where everybody has the autographs of the people they want but then of course with a film series like Star Wars given that of course now it's the films are being released like every other year still at the moment uh, I think there's a slight pause on it now but then we have the new series and everything so each time you think you might have reached saturation point there's a whole new generation discovering these films for the first time like my kids I've I've never pushed them into the Star Wars thing. They're kind of aware of it. There's a few pictures around, you know, including the one of, uh, that you guys signed for me of the, the Jabba the Hutt drawing. Um, but they're discovering it themselves. And I think that, that's the amazing thing, isn't it? That you, I'm sure at conventions, you'll have people of all ages and of all backgrounds coming up and wanting to know your, your story. Yeah, I feel like a minor player in, in some ways. I mean, you know, yes, people want to meet me and so on, but they also say, Didn't you, did you do any other characters? Because some of the background guys did two or three characters, right? I go, no, only Jabba, sorry. <laughs> 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 but um, but this, it shifts, because as more Star Wars movies come out, people want to meet the new actors, and the original trilogy is always there, but, you know, it is spread a bit thinner now. What has happened, however, because of Netflix, uh, The Dark Crystal has um, come up again in, in people's awareness. And Labyrinth has always been a cult movie. And um, I've always had a few fans turning up who are, have an affection for that. So, I mean, you know, given that I didn't really work in the film business, I mean, I, you know, I had half a dozen jobs in the 80s and that's it. That, that, that wasn't my life. Um, I feel very lucky that the half dozen I worked on were all state of the art. They were all pushing the edge. They were all doing things that hadn't been done before. And even if they weren't that successful at the time, some of them, they have re retained their cult status, if you want. Like Little Shop of Horrors, you know. I mean, I've, I've met people who've literally got tattoos on their arms of, of Audrey too, And, you know, <laughs> it's really important to them, you know. So, yeah, I, I don't do that many conventions, so I, I am not quite, uh, I haven't really saturated the market. I, I'm, you know, I have to get dog sitters and all that sort of stuff. I only do about four or five a year. Um, so two or three of those will be in the UK. Maybe, you know, one or two might be charity events, which uh, then I usually get one in somewhere in Europe, you know, in Germany or Sweden or something. 
And every now and then I get an exotic one like Mexico City or, or the USA or uh, Japan and so on. But that's perhaps once every three or four years. Um, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it's not a life, it's not a job for me. It's not, it's just, it's a fun adventure. I get to go away for a few days, uh, meet the guys and, um, you know, have some fun. Yeah. And, and sadly, some... this is this is the future content. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, yeah. Some, some of the most fun times is just meeting up with Toby and John and, and everybody else from the film. It's it's like a reunion of, of our film days. So not only is the convention great to meet the fans, it's also great, great to meet all our friends. You yeah, know, yeah. And I'd like to think in some ways that, you know, the fans also kind of open that up for you a little bit more. You know, some of the stuff that I've done where I've dug out footage that you might not have seen I've always passed on things to you Dave and Toby haven't I that um you know a new things appeared from somewhere I mean I actually heard that there was a documentary for the new trilogy and the woman who directed it had 350 hours of original trilogy behind the scenes material to plow through 350 hours that's all now been uh, restored in 4k in the in the lucasfilm archives wow i mean that is an astounding amount so some of those memories that you've got where i think it's probably still there somewhere in some form whether it's behind the scenes or whether it's rushes or dailies or whatever i hope that one day i can get a proper dive into that archive and and see what's there and uh tell this story in a way that you know, can get to a bigger audience. Because I've always found what you guys do very fascinating. Even if, like Toby said, it was for a short period of your life, I think it's uh, it's um, always very interesting to me and, and likewise to other people. So I'm very grateful to all of you, all three of you, for giving your time uh, to me again. And, um, yeah, if there's um, anywhere people can get hold of information about you or get autographs, Dave, is there somewhere that you have a website perhaps? Yes, I think most of my autographs would be available on Cool Waters site, yeah, Cool Waters Productions uh, from Derek Mackey. So he's, I, I don't have anything set up myself at this point, but he, he sort of, he's the guy who got me started into this. And so he's become more of a friend than anything. So it's, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned the inner herbit, I, hermit. I'm less, um, inner herbert, that would do. Um, <laughs> I do have a website which is life-form.eu. Okay. So and there's also johncoppinger.com. Yeah. Um, so there's there's bits and pieces, especially on that old archive site, johncoppinger.com. Mm-hmm. There's, there's somewhere in the sort of you can if you can find your way through the forest, there's there's some bits of pictures of Jabber and so on. Great. But I, I tend not to do sign-ins anymore mm. on postal stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is also that picture that um, my friend Pete designed uh, to kind of. Get rid of that old oh, yeah. crappy drawing that was in the documentaries. We, we mm, wanted yeah. to come up with something a bit more yeah. accurate, and thanks to you guys, we're able to do that. So it's nice that that's. I still see that popping up now and again on sites. And uh, yeah, no, I think we've used it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I very rarely. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I don't offer that really as a signed photo, but I had a few printed, which I often include when people buy one. I send that as a as an extra. Nice. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So they bought one, but they get one free. Um, just because it so well explains yeah. what yeah, we were doing, absolutely. you know, it goes yeah. with the, the photo of him, and, and <laughs> you know, I like I like offering someone yeah. a perk. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know, it's such a great picture. Well, I've got my copy of it um, hand painted by Pete and then signed by all of you guys. I think I got it round pretty much 
pretty oh, much yes. everybody at some point. So it's, yeah. yeah, it takes pride of place on my yeah, level. I call it my cinema room. It sounds a bit grand. It's just what would be a dining room, but I've put a little cinema screen in there. Um, well, I, I'll be honest, my wife let me put a little cinema screen in there. Um, <laughs> well, I, anything I can do to send uh, any of that business your way, I'll, I'll of course endeavour to do because I'm always grateful to you guys for your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jamie, for, for setting up again this week. It's really nice. It's lovely seeing you. And uh, perhaps we, uh, before too long, just have a have a good old natter just the, rather than a re- recording for a podcast, which would be great. Well, we have the technology and it works mostly. Yes, it does work, yes. <laughs> be great just to have a natter at some point so yeah brilliant yeah absolutely cheers jamie thanks for that it's excellent <laughs> See talk you. to you soon take care cheers Toby. bye john cheers bye cheers take care bye bye hope you enjoyed that chat i really did uh, as i said i could uh, natter to those guys all day they've been involved in some really interesting films over the years and they're all three of them are just really nice guys to be around uh, hopefully i will get to have that natter with them sometime in the future So next time, I'm going to be chatting to somebody who I've not spoken to before, but have conversed with over Messenger for some years now, Charles de Lauzarica. I hope I've pronounced his name correctly after all this time. He's one of the go-to guys for behind-the-scenes material. I loved his work on Blade Runner and Alien box sets, particularly the Blade Runner stuff. It's just amazing what they were able to dig out there. And Charles is very good at telling a story and is able to dig through all of the uh, available resources and make something really special so i'll be talking to him hopefully within the next couple of weeks and uh, that will be the next podcast hope you can join me again and please do continue to support me on patreon or just retweeting the podcast i really do want to get it out there to as many people as possible and uh, for them to hear these great stories from behind the scenes thanks for joining me and i look forward to you joining me again soon